0: Hey there, Pastor Bob here. Welcome to Season 2 of the Underground Sessions podcast, where we always have courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. We're talking about the issues you care about and training followers of Christ to think deeply about cultural engagement. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views of Millington Baptist Church. Let's dive into our latest conversation. Hey, Underground Session listeners, welcome back to season two of our podcast. As always, I'm your host, Bob Erbig. It's hard to believe that 2020 is almost over and what a year it has been. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this also means that we have a lot of topics we're going to discuss as it relates to faith, culture, and politics. Coronavirus pandemics, governmental lockdowns, mask wearing, of course, racial strife, and policing issues. Uh, today, we're going to cover that last topic, which has generated quite a bit of conversation and controversy over the last year. And so I'm joined by Timothy Schau uh, Timothy and Aaron Brake, who recently wrote an article for humanevents.com entitled A Thinking Person's Guide to Police Shootings, a rather provocative title. So Tim Shaw is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Grantham University and an Adjunct Professor of Philosophy at Johnson County Community College. He's also a trained master pistol instructor and a patrol rifle instructor through Missouri Post. You can find him at the website, timshaw.org. Aaron Brake received his BA in criminal justice and MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University. He's worked in law enforcement for 20 years and taught ac- academy classes on arrest and control techniques, use of force, and assaultive behavior. Tim, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having me. me. All right. Yeah, thank you. Good. Thanks so much for being here. Well, let's just dive right into this article here. Uh, the title, A Thinking Person's Guide to Police Shootings, implies there's also a perspective where people are not thinking about these important issues. So in your opinion, what what's required for someone to think properly about the topic
1: of police shootings? So we use the term armchair quarterbacks quite a bit in the article and in the description. A lot of people think that Uh, you know sitting from their couch recliner they think you know hey i I could do better in this situation or why don't they obviously shoot the leg or you know why do they have to fire so many shots and i think a lot of it is due to the fact that people don't actually know what it's like to to engage or in these dangerous situations or control an unruly subject or to shoot a gun a lot of these misconceptions are due to the fact that you know you see you see things on tv and hollywood and they're just not realistic and i think if you really want to understand you know, what it's like to be a police officer or someone who just has to deal with an unruly subject, you know, take a ride along, go on a ride along with, a, you know, your local police department or, you know, ask someone who has maybe a, a bouncer at a bar, you know, what it's like to actually be in a fight. And, and you'll quickly learn that a lot of what you see on TV, a lot of what you read online are really just, you know, uninformed opinions from people who haven't ever gotten into a fight or haven't had to deal with an unruly person a day in their life.
2: Yeah, Tim mentions a a few good things there. Another one he mentions in the article is just this uh, adopting an attitude of humility. Um, There are plenty of topics that I don't know anything about, and I wouldn't presume to speak on them. Um, But for some reason, when someone sees a 20-second clip of a police shooting, uh, they think that they're in a position to know all of the facts and circumstances uh, surrounding that incident, uh, and that, therefore, they are in a position to comment on it, and that's just not the case. Um, as Tim said, you can also engage in training, uh, going on ride-alongs, uh, learning how to shoot, um, reading one one book that we recommend in the article is a is a book I can't recommend highly enough. It's called "In Defense of Self and Others" by Patrick and Hall. Um, another thing you also need to do is you need to place yourself in the officer's position. And view the incident from his or her perspective. Um, In fact, uh, this is actually what the law requires when you're on a jury. One of the court cases that we discuss in the paper is a a 1989 Supreme Court ruling, uh, Graham versus Connor. And the reasonableness of a particular use of force uh, must be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than with 2020. Uh, vision or hindsight. And so what they said in that case is that the reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. So the question is whether the officer's actions are objectively reasonable in light of the facts and circumstances confronting them. Um, and so, if you were to go and sit uh, in a grand jury or on a trial, when a jury measures reasonableness uh, of an officer's action, it must uh, be from the perspective of the officer on scene.
1: And something that uh, I mentioned in the article is, and, and this is an experience I think everyone can share. You, know, you, you sometimes you see someone do something that. You know, you say to yourself, well, I could, I could do that really easily, and it doesn't look that hard. And then you actually try and do it, and then you fail miserably. You just get absolutely wrecked. And it teaches you a lesson about how to be, you know, that you should have some humility because something might look easy from the third-person perspective, but from the pr- first-person perspective, it's a lot more difficult, requires a lot more skill than you might think just looking at it from the comfort of your chair.
0: Or it seems to me a lot of times people will want to come in and pretend like they're an expert in a field they don't know anything about, whether it's police shooting or I'm sure we could come up with some other examples. Um, Let let me just share a quote from the opening of this article that you wrote. Um, You guys write, uh, the average private citizen knows vanishingly little about the complexities involved in deadly force encounters. Self-defense is not something you can master from reading books or watching John Wick movies. or or any other gun shooting movie, I should say. It's something you must experience, something that requires hands-on training. And yet, while looking at a screen from the comfort of their reclining chair, the average private citizen feels equipped to pass judgment on those who are forced to make split-second decisions or risk being killed. Because they've played some video games and they obviously know what's going on. So here, here's the question. Um, why do so many people you think have misconceptions about police shootings and justified use of force? You mentioned a couple of reasons why they, why they do have them. Why, why do you think it is?
1: So a lot of people think that, for example, shooting is a lot easier than it actually is. You just point the gun at someone and pull the trigger, right? It's just that easy. How can you miss? Well, actually shooting is Like a going little, on
0: a paintball course.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, you, shoot, you pull the trigger, bad guy goes down instantly, Right. That's not how it works in real life. Um, the act of shooting itself is actually quite uh, uh, refined. You have to make sure that you've got the right stance. You know, your trigger discipline is, is all right. You've got proper side alignment, side picture. You don't jerk the trigger. You don't heel the gun. All of these things can, can throw you off. And I, I've, I, as a firearms instructor, I teach classes where someone goes in and say, oh, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been shooting my whole life. I've been shooting, you know, on the farm or you know, I, I play Call of Duty, right? I know how to handle a gun. And they, they go up for a drill and they just absolutely, you know, it's just completely inaccurate shots uh, that, that miss the target, hit spots you're not supposed to. And so it's actually a lot more difficult than you think. And, and, you, and you take this mentality of, oh, you know, in the movies, they shoot someone, they go, they go down immediately. Uh, and in the movies, it's always really interesting because you shoot like a, a non-essential character and the non-essential character always just goes down immediately. But you shoot a main character and, and you know he takes a bullet and he just keeps on going. So it's this wild inconsistency in movies and in video games too. And so people have that mindset. Well, you know, I play Call of Duty, I know how to shoot a rifle, I know how to shoot a pistol. Well, no, um that's not you need to actually do in person. And so, you know, when people say, Well, you know, why didn't the officer just shoot the leg? Well, shooting a moving target uh, under stress is really difficult. Something that I like to do when I teach is I tell my students, look, when you're shooting in a stressful situation, you know, you, you can, you can go on behind a bay at a range and then, you know, take the time to line up your gun and pull the trigger. Well, that, that might be on the range, but in an actual real life situation, it's a lot more stressful than not to imagine, you know, submerging your hands in a bucket of ice water for 10 to 15 seconds and then trying to pull off a quick, you know, three to four shot string of fire see if you can be accurate then. And many times it's just completely horrible. And so a lot of, it's just the lack of hands-on experience, lack of uh, deference to the fact that people who are trained are making decisions about, you know, life or death situations that they have training about, and that someone with no training is looking at it and saying, well, you know, I could do better. Well, could you really do better? I don't think so. And I think when people have been put in force-on-force situations or situations in which they've had to make split-second decisions like in a simulator, for example, or in a real-life, you know, uh, a mock shooting situation. They almost always do things that, you know, someone from the outside might think are unreasonable, but from that perspective, in the moment of the situation, it's, it's objectively reasonable.
2: Yeah, I think Tim hits on two of the major sources of uh, misconceptions. One is just a lack of experience. And uh, two is the information that's presented to us through television and movies, Um, right? We have to recognize that that's not reality. Uh, Police officers are not ninjas. They're just regular human beings uh, like you and me. Um, And so often these misconceptions come from a lack of experience. Uh, Tim mentioned earlier, uh, how many people have ever really been in a real street fight? Uh, how many people have really had to wrestle someone and attempt to control them, uh, who, someone who is displaying a mental, to be, behave, uh, mental behavior or is high on drugs, right? Television movies give us a lot of bad information. For example, uh, one of the ones that I see all the time is when a taser is deployed and the suspect is hit with a taser and he goes down and then he remains unconscious for 30 minutes. Uh, that's not how a taser works. Uh, an- another one is that someone will use a carotid control hold on someone and, uh, the individual passes out. And again, he doesn't wake up for 30 minutes. Well, so again, that's not how a carotid control hold works. So people see these things and they think that this, uh, reflects how our tools actually work or, and, and that's just not reality. We have to, we have to separate fiction from reality.
0: Yeah. So, uh Aaron, why don't I, let us let me ask you just uh, some more specific questions since you're, you're the one who's, you know, on, on the field and in law enforcement. Um, the question, I guess the question would be going further with this is what are some misconceptions about, specific misconceptions about self-defense and police shootings? Like, for example, we heard, um, I think Joe Biden was quoted recently by saying that police officers should just shoot people in the leg and that would save lives. Or there's a lot of talk about we should be banning chokeholds and some of these non-lethal force things, you know? So, you know, what are some misconceptions? Where do those, where do some of those perspectives go wrong in your opinion?
2: Yeah. I know we'll talk about some misconceptions a little bit uh, further on, but let me mention two that I I don't think we mentioned in the article. Uh, One huge misconception is that police officers lose the right to self-defense. Uh, Sometimes you will hear people say the most ridiculous things after a police shooting, especially when an officer is injured or killed. I've heard people say things like, well, they knew the risk when they took the job or, well, that's just part of the job. Like, really? I I don't remember that on the job application. Uh, Police police officers don't get paid to be shot at. Uh, They don't get paid to get beat up. Uh, Every officer recognizes that there are inherent dangers to the job but it doesn't follow that those inherent dangers are somehow supposed to be regarded as normal or routine or part of what an officer has to tolerate because he knew what he was signing up for, right? So um, we mentioned several court cases uh, in, in the paper, but um, one important court case was a, a 1996 case, uh, Elliott versus Levitt, and they commented on this. They said, it is no violation of clearly established law for an officer to act to save his own life. The Constitution simply does not require police to gamble with their lives in the face of a serious threat of harm. Another misconception is that police officers uh, have to use every possible alternative or means of arrest before they can use deadly force. So again, this is something that you hear people say quite often. They'll say, well, he should have used the taser first, or uh, why didn't he use his baton before shooting? And again, this just doesn't always reflect reality. Officers are forced into situations where they have to make split-second decisions that are tense, uncertain, rapidly evolving. And in these uh, some situations, it may be feasible to use uh, a less lethal alternative and some departments may have policies or procedures in place uh, for the use of less lethal. But in other situations, officers may need to resort to deadly force right away. Um, Another case, uh, Placus versus Drinsky in 1994 case, uh, the court said this, they said there is no precedent in this circuit or any other which says that the constitution requires law enforcement officers to use all feasible alternatives to avoid a situation where deadly force can justifiably be used. There are, however, cases which support the assertion that where deadly force is justified under the Constitution, there is no constitutional duty to use non-deadly alternatives first. So police officers uh, will often refer to what we call force options. And these force options include uh, mere presence, verbal commands, controlling force, injury force, Mm -hmm. and deadly force police officers have to make decisions regarding which force option is appropriate uh, for each situation now when joe biden says things like "well, shoot him in the leg uh, using your handgun as a force option is considered deadly force it's not injury force deadly force is intended to stop a deadly threat and you don't stop a deadly threat by shooting a suspect in the leg Um, furthermore i mean getting shot in the leg is no minor injury you can be shot in the leg you can hit an artery uh, you can bleed out if you're not um, given medical treatment. Uh, what happens when you miss the leg and your rounds are now going downrange and they hit an innocent bystander, right? Now, police are going to be blamed for that. Um, or what happens if uh, you miss the leg and then you get stabbed to death? Uh, so again, there are all of these um, different considerations to think about, but the fact of the matter is that deadly threats require uh, deadly force. And this is why officers are trained to shoot uh, center mass. Okay. So again, this isn't a cowboy movie where you shoot someone in the leg and they pull the bullet out and slap a bandage on and they walk around like everything's fine. Okay. That's not how things work in reality.
0: Yeah. That was, that was an interesting point that you brought up in the article to me that I didn't realize you actually are trained to shoot at the center of the body so that you, I mean, you're going to take somebody down if they're, if they're coming after you, which, which I guess makes sense, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I think for some people they, they have issues with that, but it certainly makes sense and they don't know what it's like to be in the situation where somebody's charging after you or they're attacking you. Um, so, you know, so let's, let's mention some of these high, higher profile recent police shootings. So the the one, well, just a couple that got, got high, that got a lot of media play was the Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, the guy who got stopped and then he tried to take the taser off of his, uh, off the cop and then wound up getting shot. And also Jacob Blake in Kenosha, um, if you look at the 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 um, uh, the video camera stuff later on, it looks like they appeared to be resisting arrest, and then and then they're shot. So, as a police officer, you know, what's your take on those uh, on those incidents? And was deadly force necessary in both of those instances?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one of the again to make reference to the article, one of the cases that we mentioned is a, a 1989 Graham versus Connor Supreme Court case one of the most important cases that affects every use of force policy for every department um, across the country. And your listeners can look that up and and read it for themselves. But one of the main points that came out of that case is that um, judging an officer's actions is based on uh, whether or not it is considered objectively reasonable based on the facts and circumstances known to the officer at the time the force was used. And so it's, it's very important to remember that when we are looking at these cases. Uh, sometimes cases are more clear cut. We see someone pull a knife or we see someone pull a gun on an officer and, and the officer is, uh, uses deadly force. Um, other times it's, it's not so clear. And sometimes we have to let investigators do their jobs and we have to wait for all the facts and the circumstances to come forward Um, in order to make a proper judgment. So um, that question, when we decide deadly force is necessary, I think maybe a better way to phrase that is, uh, when do we decide that deadly force is reasonable or justified? And the the reason I say that is because sometimes the the word necessary can be used in different ways. For example, um, oftentimes we don't know what is necessary until after the fact. Uh, let me give you a situation. Imagine that a person uh, pulls out a fake gun and he points at the police and he says, I'm going to kill you, right? Uh, police officers are going to interpret that as a deadly threat and they're going to use deadly force in response. But what if after the fact, someone raised the question, well, was that necessary? Uh, someone might respond, well, no, it wasn't necessary to use deadly force against someone with a fake gun, right? I mean, it was a fake gun but that's not the standard that officers are held to. Uh, and you don't know what is necessary often until after the fact. Now, what happens when we change the question and we ask, was it reasonable? Were the, were the actions of the officer reasonable based on the facts and circumstances known to him when the force was used? Well, then the question is obviously yes. Right. And that's the standard of objective reasonableness. Uh, that's established by Graham Connor, uh, Graham versus Connor, which, uh, police officers are held to so in general uh, deadly force is reasonable or justified when there is an imminent threat of death or great bodily injury Um, another important court case from uh, 92 was called smith versus freeland they said this we must avoid substituting our personal notions of proper police procedures for the instantaneous decision of the officer on the scene we must never allow the theoretical sanitized world or our imagination to replace the dangerous and complex world that policemen face every day. So with regard to these, you know, more high, high profile um, cases, uh, Brooks, the Brooks shooting and the Blake shooting, right? We have to place ourselves in the position of the officer on scene. What are the facts and circumstances known to him at the time that the force was used? Um, so, Brooks had uh, stolen a taser, right? Uh, he's pointing the taser as he's running away at the officer. Did the officer perceive that to be a threat? What happens if the officer is tased? And now Brooks has uh, access to the officer's uh, weapon. Um, so things like circumstances like that, which you need to think about um, when you're judging this um, a use of force incident. Uh, Same thing with the Blake shooting. Uh, Blake is reportedly to be armed with a knife. Um, The officer was not only concerned with the knife, but also with the the kids uh, in the vehicle um, that Blake was attempting to enter. So again, uh, was there an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm, either both to the officer or to the children inside the car? Those are all things, those are all circumstances that have to be thought about uh, and considered in these
0: shootings. So it certainly makes it difficult to think clearly when all these things are, you know, um, at play here. Uh, You guys raised several objections in your article uh, as it it relates to thinking clearly about these police shootings. So one of the things you, you, well, actually, I'll just mention them. You you raised four. Well, well, you raised five, but I'm going to mention four. Um, The first one you said is that people will often object and say you can't shoot someone who isn't armed. The second thing you say that people will raise is that you can't shoot someone who isn't actively trying to kill you. Third, you say you can't shoot somebody in the back. And then fourth, uh, you say people will say, well, just two or three shots are enough. Those are all objections that people raise as it relates to thinking clearly about when to use deadly force. So I guess the question for you both is, you know, take those things into account. How do we create a framework for thinking clearly about – Police shootings, when we see them reported in the news or, you know, wherever we hear about them,
1: yeah. So I'll I'll take the uh, the first two myths that we talk about in the article. That first, you can't shoot someone who isn't armed. Second, that you can't shoot someone who isn't isn't in the moment trying to kill you. Uh, if you wait to see a weapon, it's probably going to be too late. Uh, as an officer, you're always at a disadvantage because you have to react to what the suspect's doing, and if you only pull your gun when the suspect already has his gun out, well you're probably gonna get shot first. So you have to you have to be cognizant of the fact that you know you're already at a tactical disadvantage. You know, if if and if you see a suspect you know just shuffling around his pockets, you know many, many times you watch these uh, these body cam footages or you know uh, footage of of traffic stops, uh, the officer will ask the subject or a suspect to, you know, please keep your hands out of your pocket. Why? Well because all it takes is just a split second. And an officer can get stabbed or shot by a suspect who pulls something out of his pocket and suddenly within half a second becomes a deadly threat. I mean, how, how can you anticipate that? You really can. So you really have to be you know, at the top of your, your game and you have to be uh, ready to anticipate those kinds of things. And so one, one common kind of shooting is uh, called furtive movement shootings where you know, an officer says stop reaching, stop reaching, stop reaching and the suspect doesn't obey the officer's commands. Well, the officer has to assume given the totality of the circumstances, that the suspect might be reaching for a weapon and take the preemptive shot before the officer either gets shot or stabbed himself. So, you know, if, if someone's walking towards me, you know, and, and I'm an officer and I, the person has their hands in their pockets or their waistband just moving around, the person isn't in the moment armed. but. Within a split second, that person can produce a weapon and potentially kill the officer. And that's why the officer says, stop, 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 stop reaching, stop digging in your pockets. And if the suspect doesn't comply, well, the suspect is going to be shot because the the uh, officer isn't going to bet his life on the fact that, oh, he's just pulling out a phone or he's pulling out, you know, something innocent. How is the officer supposed to know in the case, right? He, he can't. And so the officer has to take that shot uh, uh, because it's either his life. Or the officer's life, and you know you're not going to gamble around like that. Second is that you can't shoot someone who's actually trying to shoot. You can't shoot someone who's actively not trying to kill you. You know, you might you know, it, it, let's say you've got a, you know someone standing twenty feet away. They've got a knife, but they're not they're not you know running at you. They're not they're not actively in the moment trying to kill you. Uh, and we see many shootings in, in, in these kinds of cases where, you know, the suspect seems to be a considerable distance away and nevertheless gets shot. Well, if you understand anything about police training, there's something called the Tuller principle or it's sometimes called the 21 foot rule. It's more of a heuristic, but generally the idea is that an average adult male can cover around 21 feet in about a second and a half. And so if you think about the time it takes for an officer to react the time to the process. Oh, this person's running towards me with a knife, and the time it takes to to unholster their weapon, aim, and shoot. That is putting them already at a, at a disadvantage. In fact, they, there was a recent study done on this where, if you take into account reactionary gap, if you take into account the time for the officer to recognize, oh yeah, uh, someone's coming at me, and I got to unholster my gun, it's more like thirty to thirty-five feet because many of these 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 tests that they do are under controlled settings. So for example, you'll have someone 21 feet away. You'll have someone who, you know, is role-playing an officer. They know they're going to be charged at 21 feet. And so, you know, at, at the, uh, the buzzer or whatever, at the bell, right? The, uh, the role player draws as quickly as possible. Well, even that kind of situation is, is artificial. It's under a classroom environment, you might say, and in real life, you know, uh, Covering 21 feet in a second and a half, that gives you that doesn't give you much time at all. And so we look at the the recent shooting in Philadelphia, where uh, officers shot a knife wielding man. And if you look at the video, he was pretty close to the officers. And you know, given what we know about an average adult male covering 21 feet in a second and a half, they were eminently justified in shooting because if if they had waited, they might not have. Have, have had the time to, to react appropriately. And so these kinds of things that you don't, you don't think about, you know, oh, he's 20 feet away. He's just, you know, he's, he's standing still. He might have a knife out, sure, but he's not really trying to kill you in the moment. Well, in just a second and a half, he can cover that entire distance and be on you and stabbing you. And so you have to keep these things into account when you're when you're you know uh, uh, dealing with deadly threat situations.
0: That's helpful. Would you add, add anything to that, Aaron?
2: Um, no, I think he I think he pretty much covered everything.
0: Okay, well, hey Tim, let me let me shift into uh, some theology here because uh, you know, for the Christian listening to this podcast, they they might have some misgivings about the use of guns and deadly force. So let's, let's talk about the, some of the theological questions, uh, you know, that maybe are the underpinnings of what we've been discussing. Uh, does Scripture support arming ourselves for self-defense? Now, Tim wrote a really in- intriguing article with another provocative title at freethinkingministries.com, and it's entitled, Jesus Endorsed Armed Self-Defense. So what do you mean by that? Does Scripture support armed self-defense?
1: So many people have this idea that, um, arming yourself or defending yourself is somehow incompatible with what Jesus teaches, what scripture teaches, because you're supposed to rely on God for protection. You're supposed to pray and trust God. You're supposed to, you know, let him do the heavy lifting. And I, and I don't disagree with that, but we also, we also live in a world and we also, you know, we, we eat, we drink, we don't say, well, Hey God, if it's your will, you know, um, my stomach will suddenly be filled, right? We, we, God gave us brains for a reason. And if we look throughout the, the, uh, the scriptures, we see cases where, yes, you know, uh, God's people will pray, but they'll also be realistic and say, hey, we got to you know, step up and use our brains and do things to defend ourselves. So for example, in the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah, it says specifically that we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection day and night. that you see here the blend of okay i'll trust in god but also maybe it's because maybe god intends us to do things proactively instead of completely you know act we're not babies right and so god intends us to do things with what we've been given And i think self-defense is is one of those things you know obviously yes we should trust god that he he's in control that he protects us but god gives us the resources he gives us you know arms and legs he gives us technology and we can use these things to defend ourselves. And we look in the, uh, you know, the Old Testament's filled in, of cases where uh, the Old Testament is certainly not pacifist. I'll, I'll say that. You see a lot of, of of fighting, a lot of violence in the Old Testament, many of which is is condoned by God. Now you do see in the New Testament more of an emphasis on nonviolence. And people say that, well, you know, uh, Jesus was a pacifist. He wouldn't he wouldn't have uh, uh, endorsed the idea of of carrying a sword or carrying a gun. Well, actually, as I argue in the article, it's, it's more, more nuanced than that. But I think the, the, uh, the main objection people have when it comes to just from a scriptural perspective is that, you know, we should love our enemies, we should love others, and that somehow using force is incompatible with love. Well, if you think about what love is, love is just willing or desiring What's good for someone right love is not just this, this i'll bend over backwards and let them walk over me kind of attitude love is uh is other directed it's it's about wanting what's good and sometimes wanting what's good uh isn't giving someone what they want or letting them just trample all over you. Love can sometimes be non uh, love can sometimes be coercive in the case of discipline, for example discipline is by nature coercive. Mm-hmm. And so love does not um, exclude coercion. And you know, if a parent can punish their child, which as an act of love, well then why can't we also use force? Why can't we use violence as a means of you know as a means of love? And you know, if you if you love if you love your, your neighbor, right, if you love your enemy, you want them to stop doing what's bad. And so one way of exercising that love is to stop Stop them from doing what's bad. To use force to control them. To use force to stop them. Now, obviously, it's a tragedy if if they they, they 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 get hurt or they perish. But that's not what you're you're desiring. You want them to stop doing the evil action, right? And so, you you read the uh, uh, Christian literature on this. Uh, uh, Christian ethicists who have talked about this and uh, a principle that sometimes come up that comes up is called the the doctrine of double effect, where the goal isn't so much to intend to kill, but to intend to stop the threat. And you can intend to stop the threat without intending to kill them. And so when the, when we talk about loving our neighbor, when we talk about loving our enemy, right, the proper application of that in a self-defense context is that, hey, we use whatever force is necessary to stop the threat. We don't want them to perish, right? We don't want them to die. We don't seek their demise. We seek them to stop doing the evil thing they are doing in the moment so that, you know, they're better off and were better off and those whom were responsible for are better off. But, you know, using self-defense is completely within the bounds of loving your neighbor. And in fact, I would say, you know, using force and self-defense is sometimes required, especially if we've got people who were responsible for, if you, if you have a spouse, if you have children, letting them be hurt is a failure of love. And Mm -hmm. so loving them uh, in, in a case where their life is threatened would be taking measures to protect them. And you don't, you don't do that by letting whoever is causing them harm to carry out their plans. It's just, that is not what Christian love is. It's not this, this, you know, attitude of, Oh, I'll let them do whatever they want and I'll just go along with it. Love is uh, forceful. Love can be coercive.
0: Hmm. Isn't there the classic example of saying if if somebody broke into your house tonight, you know as would, and was trying to kill your wife or, or your kids or, or your your spouse wouldn't you get up and, and defend yourself right in, in that in that sense that would be the more loving thing to do for your family rather than not using self defense so i mean that's it's, it's a good point um, hey the uh, in the article you you specifically cite um, luke twenty two as an example of uh, jesus endorsing self defense so let me can I just read that that passage really quick and then have you comment on it? So it's Luke 22, uh, verses 35 to 37. In the ESV, it says this, And he, Jesus, said to them, When I sent, sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in time. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has been, has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, there are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. What does that passage have to do with self-defense?
1: So if you look at verse 35, he's alluding to an earlier point in his ministry where he sends them out. Uh, If you read Luke nine, he sends them out. He says, take nothing for your journey. Don't take a staff, a bag. Don't even take food. Don't take money. Don't even have a tunic. Um, all that stuff will be given to you. It'll be provided for you, you know, uh, uh, through special providence. And in Luke 22, Jesus is saying that basically, you know, Hey, look, um, soon my mission will be accomplished on, on earth. I am no longer going to be with you physically, and you're not going to enjoy the special providence that you did receive when I was with you there, you know, physically. And so that's why he alludes to those that, that previous, um, point in his ministry where their needs were providentially met. He says to them now, verse 36, uh, but now let the one who has no money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now why, why would he say that? Well, uh, I, I think what he's telling his disciples there is that, look, um, you are going to reach a point soon where many of the needs that I made sure were met for you, you're going to have to provide on your own. And one of those is self-defense, one, the protection for yourself, right? And so he says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Well, a cloak was a pretty big uh, um, item back in that day. It kept you warm, kept you, kept you sheltered, kept you protected. And, and to sell your cloak and buy a sword meant that a pretty high premium was put on the sword, mm-hmm. uh, that, that it, it mattered. And it would make sense because a sword is something used to protect your life, just like, you know, your clothing is something you use to keep yourself warm at night. And so I think Jesus here, the, the proper rendering of this pathogen context is that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to be self-reliant. And part of self-reliance <clears throat> includes self-defense. Now, if you continue reading, uh, uh, there is, there, it, it, it does say in the uh, next verse is that, you know, I, I tell you the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Some commentators uh, interpret this passage as basically saying that well, the reason why Jesus is telling his disciples to get a sword is so that he can look like a transgressor, he can look like a brigand, and then, you know, he'll be put on trial, he'll be convicted as a criminal, and so the actual purpose of the swords is to fulfill scripture to make him look like a criminal. But that just doesn't fit the proper reading of that passage, especially the, the allusion to the money bag, the knapsack, the sandals. Those seem to be referring to a very specific point in his ministry, Jesus' ministry, where he's talking about you know, self-reliance versus providential protection. And moreover, if you read the entirety of the Gospels, never once is the idea that Jesus is a common criminal used as a reason for his conviction and crucifixion. It was the fact that he claimed to be divine. And so the, the idea that the swords are actually there to fulfill prophecy, to make him look like a criminal, just doesn't have any exegetical support. And so I think the proper reading of this is that Jesus is simply encouraging his disciples mm. to be armed. And I, I go into detail uh, in this, in the, the article that you mentioned, uh, but I, I think it's yeah, pretty clear here that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to protect themselves. Now, you do see later on, that Jesus, in response to you know, Peter drawing a sword and chopping the ear off Malchus, that you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And many people interpret that as a condemnation of the use of force by Jesus. But if you read that passage very carefully, what Jesus is condemning here isn't so much the use of the sword per se, it's using the sword to interfere with his plan on earth. You know, Jesus is saying, "You know, shall I not drink from the cup that's been given to me?" He's saying that, "Look, I am supposed to be taken in, and you can't interfere with that." Notice that he doesn't tell the disciples to put or Peter to put his to, to throw his sword down and get rid of it. He says, "Put your sword back in its sheath." In other words, the sword has a place. The sword is supposed to serve a certain role. Just not trying to. Um, accelerate the kingdom of God or to interfere with God's plan. Now I notice in, you know, uh, throughout scripture, right. Jesus doesn't tell us centurion to stop sinning, you know, uh, because he's in the military. So, so you don't, you don't really see, uh, a, a, a condemnation of, you know, using force as force, uh, for that very sake by, by Jesus. It's always about a certain specific context, as we saw in, you know, when he tells Peter, Peter, to, um, that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword it's not con- condemning the sword per se it's condemning peter's specific use of the sword
0: well that's certainly some really interesting uh really interesting points that people probably haven't thought about before um hey as as we start to wrap up here i want to ask you guys about some some takeaways for our listeners like what are some things um that they should be thinking about as as they leave as it relates to police shooting and gun ownership um maybe even for you tim what are you know some people might say hey i I hear you like those are some interesting points, but I'm still like uh, it still feels weird to me to own a gun. Like what's kind of the the moral case for owning a gun? Um, And, uh, you know, maybe you could speak to that and then we can kind of wrap it up with both of you just offering some uh, some takeaways uh, for our
1: our listeners. Yeah, I think I think scripture, there's a good scriptural case to be made for using you know, force, weapons, and self-defense. But even aside from that, just a purely moral, philosophical case for, for gun ownership. Everyone has, I think, would agree that we all have a right to life. And if you have a right to life, well, what's the, what, what point would that right be to have that right if you don't have the right to, to protect that right, to defend that right? And so the right to life and the right to self-defense are really closely connected. And of course, the right to self-defense is the right to use force to defend your life. And guns are a really, really effective force, uh, a really effective means of self-defense. Many studies, you know, unanimously show that uh, gun defensive gun use is as effective or more effective than using a knife, using a bat, using pepper spray, uh, or just even not not resisting at all. Using a gun, obviously, you know, given the the dynamics of what a gun is, what it does, it's a pretty powerful deterrent and force interrupter when it comes to defending yourself. So if you have a right to life, you have a right to self-defense and you have a right to an effective means of self-defense, right? If you had the right to self-defense, but the government said, oh, the only thing you can use to defend yourself is your arms and your legs. Well, that would be, that, that, that would be affirming the right to self-defense in name only, right? If you want to have a robust, if, 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 if the government wants to protect the right to self-defense in a way that's more than just lip service. It needs to guarantee that its citizens, given how varied they are with respect to, you know, age, sex, body type, physical ability, they have to have some kind of equalizer that lets them control for the disparities that are commonly exploited in violent crimes. I mean, look at violent crimes, right? It's always, uh, criminals aren't completely irrational, right? A criminal is going to pick somebody he can dominate. And so victims are almost always at an inherent disadvantage given the nature of a violent crime. A victimizer will uh, pick someone, he'll pick a victim, he can overpower. And so you need a form of self-defense that can control for that. And what better form of self-defense than a firearm? And it's not a surprise right now that we see record numbers of people you know the 2020 has been a record-breaking year in terms of gun sales with all the unrest going on even people who i know who were previously really skittish about guns are like well are are now like well you know maybe i should get a gun for self-protection because of all the unrest that's going on maybe i should get some training and you know it's it's no surprise given you know what guns are how effective they are that people would want to do this and especially with all the the violence and chaos and the The potential for that in the future people are concerned about their lives and the lives of those whom you know they're responsible for and so the moral philosophical case for gun ownership is just basically it's an effective means of self-defense and self-defense is as basic a right as the right to life if you don't if you don't protect the right to self-defense what point is the right to life
0: Mm. gotcha aaron what takeaways would you have for our listeners yeah,
2: just a few takeaways. Um, deadly encounters with police officers are not going to go away. Um, they're going to continue to be in the news. And unfortunately, the ones that we are most often going to see in the news are uh, encounters that involve uh, white officers and uh, minority suspects. Um, even though for every case of a shooting um, against a black, I could produce a similar case. Uh, of a shooting against the white um, with this just fuels I think the racial tension that 's going on right now and and it 's unfortunate um, because of this, you know we really need to resist uh, jumping to conclusions based off uh, a fifteen second video clip that we see on the news. We need to gather as much information as possible, as I mentioned earlier, we need to let investigators do their jobs we want to know all the facts and circumstances. Um, behind these shootings, before we jump to conclusions um, and and make judgments, and one and that's one of the reasons that's one of the things that hinders uh, many people from making reasonable judgments uh, regarding an officer involved shooting is the simple fact that they are unaware of all the facts and circumstances. Uh, sometimes it's straightforward, but sometimes um, it's not. Uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, right? But we need to put ourselves in the in the position of the officer who was. Uh, on scene. Uh, Probably one of the most damaging movements uh, that's going on right now is the defund the police movement. Uh, Some departments across the country are losing officers either from retirements or resignations or officers moving to other departments. Um, In those areas where this is occurring, you will see a rise in crime and a rise in murder. Uh, Defunding the police is only going to hurt the community. So we need to get our officers more training, more support, so that they have all the resources available uh, to do their jobs. If officers do not feel that they are supported by their community, uh, no one is gonna to wanna to be a police officer and risk their safety or risk their livelihood or risk going to jail or prison uh, for the rest of their life simply because they're trying to do their job. Um, we really need to think about how policy is going to affect the future of law enforcement in this country.
0: All right. Well, Tim, Aaron, this has been a really, really intriguing and provocative conversation. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, just for the listeners, I want to let you know, I will be posting some of these links within our show notes or in the Facebook post when I put it out there. Uh, Tim, in particular, has written up the Federalist and a number, a number of other um, a number of other online uh, journals. And uh, he's again, his website is timshout.org. I'll put that in the um, in the, uh, in the, in the show notes and uh, definitely go check it out. He's got some really uh, a, a whole slew of articles around a bunch of different topics that I think you would find, uh, find fascinating. So uh, check them out, Tim, Aaron, thanks so much for being here uh, on the underground sessions podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. And we will see you guys next time on the underground sessions podcast. Thanks for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, where we have courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends. And please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store or wherever you're listening to podcasts so others can find us. You can also connect with us at www.MillingtonBaptist.org where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more and more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast.